0: James 1 verse 19 to 27 know this my beloved brothers let every person be quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls but be doers of the word not hearers only deceiving yourself for For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue but deceive his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself oneself unsustained from the word, the word of the Lord.
1: Almighty Father, uh, we have just heard that there is um, that there is great blessing in the doing of your word, not just being hearers but being doers. Um, and so, right now, I, I, I suppose that puts us in a in a place of. Um, Of risk and opportunity. Father, we're going to hear your word. Uh, We're going to practice paying attention to it. But Father, will you help us? Will you pour out your grace in us that we might, right now, not merely be hearers but walk out as doers? And in order for that to happen, we need you to do a, a work within our hearts a transforming work within our hearts. And Father, we honor you and we thank you that we come expectant of that work, expectant of that miracle, because of all your promises in your word. The word which we hear is a word full of promise that your grace works deeply within us, not only calling us to a different behavior, but empowering us for transformation. And so we ask that all the power of your mercy and grace by the Spirit would be at work within us. And set aside all obstacles to that transforming work and grant us to rejoice in you in jesus name amen amen please have a seat um, and uh, it would be great if you would turn back to page 10 uh, that is a re- reading from the new testament it's an excerpt from the new testament book of uh, james we were looking at james last week we're going to look continuing in uh, James today. And what we're going to be talking about is how uh, the Word of God, as James says, the Word of God or the, um, Im, uh, the implanted Word or the law of liberty, how the Word of God uh, reshapes our moral life. Uh, but take a look at that reading and, and skip right to the last bit. Do you see that little verse, uh, that little number 26? Um, start reading there. It says this, <clears throat> If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world." Now, okay, I have a question, Emmanuel. Do you find that provocative? I think you should, and if you don't, I wonder if it's just because you're familiar with it. I think you should find that provocative. Why? Well, if you're a Christian, uh, that reading, did you catch it? It gives a, a criteria for figuring out whether or not your religion is worthless or real. Worthless is the text, not me. Now, that's a, do you agree that that's a pretty high-stakes thing? And not only does it give you a criteria for determining whether or not your religion is worthless or real, the criterion that it gives is probably not the criterion you expect. James, just look at it. In, in so many words, James says, listen, do you, know, do you want to know whether or not your religion is real? Well, here you go. Think about how you use your words. James says, for instance, do you weaponize your words? Either when you speak or when you post or whatever else. Or James says, uh, think for instance, about how you relate to the vulnerable. Uh, Do you ignore the vulnerable? or James says think about how consistent you are in following Jesus. Do you hear but not do? Are you a hypocrite? Uh, Are you unstained by the world? Now, does that make anybody else uncomfortable? Like that's it's mildly stressful to me. James is really provocative. So if you're a Christian, This demands attentiveness, however, I think it should demand our attention even if you do not identify as a Christian and here's why, see if you agree with just a few statements. Of all the many problems we're facing today, one of the most urgent is this. We need as a society to learn how to listen to each other and speak to each other without hostility even when we disagree. Does that sound plausibly, do you agree? Or think about this, Um, of all the many problems we're facing today, one of the most urgent is this, we need to learn how to care for the vulnerable without exploiting them or becoming paternalistic in the process. Would you agree with that? If you can agree with either of those two things, James demands our attention because that's what James is addressing. Or see if you agree with this, of all the many problems we're facing inside the church, but also out in the community and in the nation and all of those sorts of things, one of the most urgent problems is this, we need to learn how to counter the problem of hypocrisy. I don't know if that's quite as obvious but if you think about uh, your family background for instance or if you think about leaders in the nation or in business or in the church that have disappointed you if you think about the causes of a of a failure and a lack of trust within the public space but also within our private lives very often the uh, collapse of trust can be traced back in one way or another to somebody who said one thing but did another, it traces back to hypocrisy at a deep level. So that hypocrisy uh, destroys families, destroys churches, destroys nations. It's a big, big problem. Now, Jim, why are you saying all this? I'm saying all this to say that James has a provocative vision for the moral life. And James has his finger on the pulse of the present moment. And therefore, he deserves our attention. However, I also want to point out The most remarkable thing about the book of James and of this particular excerpt is not just that James presents a big, giant moral vision. It's not just that his moral standard is really, really compellingly high and challengingly high. There's something more remarkable about the book of James. And the thing that's more remarkable about the book of James is not only does he have a high moral standard, but he's got a remarkable path of getting us there. And that's our focus today. The question is, Emmanuel, how can we be a people who are shaped morally at the depths of our character into being a people who, for instance, use our words well, and for instance, care for the vulnerable wisely, and who, for instance, live lives of integrity in our private sphere as well as in our public persona? And James gives us some insight here, and that's what we're going to flesh out right now, okay? All right, take a look at uh, verse 21. Do you see how James talks about the implanted word? Verse 21. And then skip down to verse 25. Do you see how James talks about the perfect law or the law of liberty? And then do you notice how in between he talks about being doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word, okay? Okay. If you can grasp what James is talking about when he talks about the implanted word and the law of liberty and being a doer of the word and not merely a hearer of the word, if you can grasp that, then you will also grasp how it is that we can be transformed in our moral lives. So what does he mean by the implanted word, uh, the law of liberty, being doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word? Well. When James talks about the implanted word or the law of liberty, those are different titles for the same basic story. And the story is a big story. It's a story that is all about Jesus, or at least it culminates in Jesus. It's about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what difference that makes in our lives. But it's a story that culminates in Jesus, but it starts before Jesus. It starts way back deep in what sometimes is called the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. And if you uh, read the whole of the Old Testament, one of the things you'll realize is that it's a story that's pretty straightforward, but it's a story about a very dynamic relationship between God and ancient Israel. And the story really gets going when, when Israel is enslaved in Egypt for a very long time and then God breaks in, in the book of Exodus, God breaks in on the story of Israel and kind of introduces himself to the people of Israel by liberate the, liberating them from the greatest superpower of their day. God liberates Israel from their enslavement. Before that, Israel knew vague things about the God of their ancestors, but they didn't know very much. And and all things became more clear when God broke into their lives and liberated them from their enslavement. And immediately, when God liberated Israel out of their enslavement in Egypt, God took Israel into the desert to a place called Mount Sinai, and there, God and Israel entered into a covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is a committed relationship. And more specifically, it's a committed relationship where two or more parties make promises to one another that then uh, unite them in a permanent bond of relationship. So for instance, uh, marriage is a covenant. Two parties make promises, they're bound together in a permanent relationship. Adoption is a type of covenant. A new family is formed. Uh, National citizenship is very often a type of covenant. And in all these cases, you have uh, two or more parties that make promises with each other. They They all accept responsibilities that go with those promises, and the result is a new and permanent relationship bound together by love, usually, or in the case of a national sphere, maybe loyalty or something like that. But what matters for us is that God and Israel entered into a covenant with each other. God promised to love Israel, not because they're so amazing, but because love flows out of God because that's who he is. And Israel responded to that love and responded to the liberation God had achieved for them by saying, yes, we will love you in return and we'll express that love. Uh, through the sign language, so to speak, of obedience. And and that's where you get the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are, in a sense, the ways Israel's going to say yes to God, yes to this relationship with God. They're going to love God in sign language through their obedience. But here's the odd thing. If you follow the storyline of the Old Testament. From that moment, God always keeps his side of the covenant, but Israel almost never, sometimes, but almost never keeps their end of the covenant. And it's a very strange thing, because as you're reading the story of Israel, you realize that Israel knows right and wrong. It's not a failure of education, primarily. Repeatedly, Israel finds out that obeying God serves their long-term interest and disobeying God uh, undermines their long-term interest and yet despite knowing all of those things, Israel consistently makes a moral mess of their lives. Now, Emmanuel, let me hit the pause button here because this is one of the mysteries of morality. Knowing right and wrong is important but it's very rarely enough. It's crucial, but despite having lots of head knowledge, there is something deep within the human heart that means even when we know the right thing to do, we very often choose to do something else. Have you noticed that in your life? If you haven't, just rehearse for a few minutes your regrets. The times you've done things you knew were wrong, or think about all the things you've done that you're very good at justifying, but if, you're, if we can catch you at an honest moment, you know that they were wrong. In James' words, it's one thing to hear the word. It's another thing to do the word. All right. Go back to Israel, because Israel, as the story unfolds, they hear the word a lot, but they don't do the word very well. And they end up a moral train wreck time and again. And in fact, as the story unfolds, you hear this in the prophets, you begin to realize, Israel begins to realize, or their prophets do, that their uh, moral failure is a new kind of enslavement. They used to be enslaved, quite literally and politically, by uh, Egypt, but now they're enslaved by something within them, s- their own consistent moral failure. And this is the moment, as the sweeping story of the Old, Old Testament unfolds, this is the moment when God breaks in anew with a new promise, the promise of a new covenant. If you want to read about this later, go and read Jeremiah chapter 31. God promises that one day he's going to establish a new covenant. And what's going to be the difference between this new covenant and the old covenant that they already had? Well, look at James verse 21. The great thing about the new covenant is that in this new covenant, the word is going to be implanted in our hearts. What does that mean? Well, it means at least this. In the New Covenant, which is the covenant Jesus inaugurates, God doesn't just give us commands, do this, don't do that, and then leave the rest up to us. In the New Covenant, God gives an inward motivation to obey. So in the New Covenant, God still gives commands. There are many of the same commands that were in the Old Covenant, but God also works inside us. It's an inside job. God comes in by the power of his Holy Spirit and works at the level of our desires, shaping us, transforming us, so that our hearts incline towards obeying God and rather than disobeying God. And what that means is that the word, the command, is not just outside us. The word is now inside us, implanted within us. And that explains why James calls it the law of liberty in verse 25. Um, Does that sound like an oxymoron to you? Law of liberty? And I can imagine somebody saying at this point, oh, stop, hold on, Jim. All this talk about obeying God kind of freaks me out. Kind of freaks me out. Why does it freak you out? Well, I can imagine somebody saying, it kind of sounds like I'm going to get squished under a cosmic thumb. I can imagine somebody saying, it sounds a little bit like I'm, going, I'm signing up to be imprisoned by a giant invisible tyrant in the sky. Can you identify with that fear? I can see the point. However, consider this. When the word is implanted within our hearts, what happens is that there's a congruence created. Between our highest ambitions and our deepest desires and God's commands. And what happens is that obeying God's commands becomes the path of real liberation. Let me try to illustrate this from the reading. Okay? Uh, Take, for instance, verse 27. It says this Visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction. Okay now if you have uh, deeply if you are deeply immersed in the story of jesus and if the new covenant is really beginning to take hold in your life then one of the things you'll find out is that that word visit is a loaded word it doesn't sound like a loaded word but it's a loaded word how is it a loaded word well remember where we left off israel's story Uh, israel was trapped Israel was enslaved by their own moral failure. And what they needed is they needed God to visit them again like God had visited them when they were enslaved in Egypt. They didn't need God to visit them in the sense of, you know, the way you and I might visit a foreign country or something like that, like a tourist. They needed God to visit them like a doctor visits a patient or like an advocate visits a prisoner. They needed God to visit them in order to set them free. And that's precisely the word that we get when Jesus shows up. You can read about this in, for instance, the Gospel of Luke chapter one. When Jesus shows up, um, the, the Gospels describe it as God is visiting, same word, visiting his people in order to set them free just like he had set them free from Egypt. Now imagine you're like ancient Israel. Imagine you know yourself to be deeply enslaved by moral failure. And then imagine that you found that God had entered into your story, broken into your story in love and care for you. Imagine that you found out that in Jesus Christ, God had done everything necessary for your moral failure to be canceled, for you to receive a complete pardon. Imagine then that you found out that not only had Jesus established, done everything necessary for your pardon, but that he had also done everything necessary for you to receive a new record so that you could stand before God without any conscience problems, and that you could live under his affection as his adopted child and be embraced by the love that is at the center of all the universe. Now imagine that happened. Can you, can you see what the kind of liberty that that would feel for you? And then take all that story and all that sense of liberation and relief squeeze it and compress it into the little word called visit and you'll realize that God visited you when you were imprisoned enslaved and vulnerable now the more you internalize that story the more your heart will soften towards other people who are experiencing vulnerability however they experience that vulnerability If you've been visited by God when you were vulnerable at that deep level, then you will want to visit others who are vulnerable. Not visit them in order to exploit them, not visit them in the sense of a kind of paternalistic sort of thing, but visit them in order to serve them as you have been served by God himself. The word, the message, and the commandment is being written upon your heart. That's one example. Take another example. Verse 19 says this. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now again, imagine you have deeply internalized the story of Jesus. Now as you deeply internalize the story of Jesus and then you read that verse, your mind will begin to work a little bit like this. It'll be as if you say this, well, okay, the righteousness of God. I might ask myself, how did Jesus accomplish the righteousness of God? Did God achieve God's, or did, Israel, did Jesus achieve God's purpose in the world primarily by anger? Was it primarily by raging against the injustice around him? Was it primarily by raging against my moral failures? Was it primarily by raging against his enemies and and motivating people around him to follow him out of a sense of anger? Is that how he did it? And you'll realize, no, that's not how he did it. He achieved the righteousness of God primarily by loving his enemies, serving his enemies, in fact, you'll realize that Jesus loved his enemies to the point of dying upon the cross precisely so that his enemies could be pardoned from their moral failure and be adopted into the family of God. And then you'll realize that in a deep way, you were one of those enemies and that Jesus, not rather than raging against me, he loved me and gave his life for me. And the more you internalize that story, the more you'll realize, well, of course the righteousness of God and the purpose of God in this world is not primarily going to be achieved through the anger of men, but through loving your enemies. Because I was loved when I was God's enemy. Emmanuel, just pause there. (laughs) Can you imagine how our world would be transformed if people internalized that message? And how... how important it is that we're not taken in. I want to be slow to anger so that I can love my enemies because Jesus was slow to anger to me and loved me when I was his. What am I trying to show you? I'm trying to show you, Emmanuel, that when Jesus becomes the animating center of your life, you gain an internal motivation to obey the commandments of God. And the commandments of God are no longer a weight outside us that crush us, but rather the message of Jesus renews us and liberates us from the inside out. The word is implanted within us and the law becomes a law of liberty. Can you see that? By the way, this is how you fight hypocrisy. Ever wondered how you fight hypocrisy in the church? In the world well when the word is implanted within us by christ like i said he creates a congruence between our inmost secret self and our public persona and the more that happens in your life and in my life and in our community the more hypocrisy will simply have nowhere to hide but here's the thing none of this is automatic we got to do something. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says we need to persevere in intently looking in the law of liberty. Verse 21 says we have to receive the word or the word receive could be translated welcome the implanted word. what that means for us is that God calls us to intentionally consent to his word. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the things that this means is that Jesus is saying, there is a new covenant that I want you to be a member of. Jesus is saying to those who are not yet his followers, I want you to officially enter the new covenant. Come, I have promises to offer you. I have a new life to give you. Won't you consent to my covenant and enter it by trusting me and sealing it in baptism? And here at Emmanuel, we would love to walk with you in getting clear on what all that means. If you are a follower of Jesus, it means welcoming the implanted word in every specific area of your moral life. So, for instance, do you need to grow in compassion for the vulnerable? Well, what you do is you consider Jesus and how he has visited you in your vulnerability. And then you keep considering that until your heart begins to warm with gratitude for Jesus. And as that gratitude to Jesus grows, you'll have a new motivation for caring for the vulnerable around you. And you'll begin to notice them. Or do you need to grow in handling anger? Uh, Well, if that's the issue then don't just try to resist anger. Don't just go, and let's try not to be angry. That's not going to work. Instead, look away from the thing that's making you mad and look at Jesus. And consider how Jesus responds to you when you were his enemy. And keep considering that until your heart begins to warm with gratitude to Jesus. And then you'll have a new motivation for looking at the people that tick you off and seeing their humanity, or do you need to learn how to be uh, quick to listen and slow to speak? Well, begin by listening to God's word daily in the scriptures because the practice of listening to God in the Bible uh, uh, trains your soul to be a better listener. And, you give, and the Lord will give you more discernment and humility as you listen to others, even when you don't agree with them. Do You see how it works? God forms us morally so that we can welcome the implanted word into the specific areas where we find it difficult to obey. We don't just think about the command. We welcome the story of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. And the more we welcome that in, we are gain a new motivation said before, uh, James can be provocative. And he's got a massive moral vision. But that's not the most remarkable thing about James. The more remarkable thing is the path he gives us to that moral transformation. He doesn't just tell us what to do, he tells us how to become a people who do it. And that how is by the grace of God. And Emmanuel, this is so important for us because our world, Emmanuel, is facing monumental moral challenges. And yet despite the fact we're facing monumental moral challenges, our world has very little ability to address them adequately. And part of the reason this is important is because the book of James is calling us, Emmanuel, to be a different kind of people. James is calling us to be different, not because we're special, not because uh, we're better than anyone else, because we're not. And if we think we are, we have lost everything. Rather, James is calling us to be different from the world around us because Jesus is different. Jesus, in the words of James in the last verse, Jesus was unstained by the world, which means he was different from the world around him in a good way. The leaders in his day loved to exploit the vulnerable. The leaders in his day loved to motivate through anger. That was normal. That's just what good leaders, good and in quotes, that's what good leaders were all about. That's how you recognize a good leader. The leaders in their day didn't think humility was a good thing. They thought it was a form of weakness. But Jesus was unstained by any of it, and he rejected all of that. And he was unstained by the world, And it was the fact that he was so different from the world around him that made him the perfect gift for the sake of the world. And as he works that same transformation in us, that's how we will become a gift in the midst of our city. Jesus wants to bring his implanted word to bear on the moral failures of our lives so that we can be transformed and reflect his beauty in a world that is in desperate need of seeing it. So welcome, welcome the implanted word. Amen. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city, and I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emanuel, and if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emanuelanglicannyc.com give.